You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings 12, this is Corbin Smith, your host for the Locked On Seahawks podcast, along with Rob Rang. Thanks for listening in on this wonderful Tuesday. We've got a loaded show on tap for you, including a special guest to break down Seattle signing of versatile guard B.J. Finney. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. We've been sitting on the edge of our seats waiting for John Schneider and the Seahawks front office to start the other side of free agency. Rob, we know about all the big bucks being thrown at players when the new league year opens, and and that's the biggest news. But there's another group of players that has to deal with a far different set of circumstances, and it revolves around receiving a pink slip. You know that once we get to this point, Teams have made a bunch of signings. It becomes clear they need cap space if they're going to make other moves. The Seahawks finally are in that situation where they now need to start purging their roster a little bit. And that leads to the dismissal of Tedrick Thompson and Ed Dixon. Yeah, it is. It's a tough day, you know, because these are these are players who are are legitimate NFL talents. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, obviously, Ed Dixon has been a very successful player throughout his career. Um, you know, health um, has been a bit of an issue, you know, here recently. But at the same time, clearly a proven NFL prospect. We've seen so many teams, uh, and Seattle included, um, that have gone aggressively after tight ends and free agents, the, in free agency this year. Um, so you know, kind of rooting Ed Dixon on, they may be able to kind of land it on his feet somewhere. And then with Tedrick Thompson, um, you know, obviously a guy that that was drafted, you know, high expectations to be Earl Thomas's replacement at the free safety position. Struggled with with consistency in Seattle, but he's a young enough player that I feel confident that he might get a chance somewhere else as well. I look at these two. Far different situations, same outcome. You've got a 25-year-old safety in Tedrick Thompson that the last two seasons got a lot of starting experience. He started 16 games for the Seahawks last year. His season ended early with a torn labrum, though I think his starting job had already been lost anyway because they traded for Quandre Diggs after Week 7, and really that was the breaking point for him. This is a kid that I can tell you from being at the VMAC a lot and watching a lot of practices he is one of those guys that always played well at practice. And, and there were signs out there. You can see why the coaching staff was excited about him because it felt like every time I was there, he was making interception or two every practice. He had his hands on the ball. He was flying all over the place. And then in games, it's just like there was an on-off switch. And he just couldn't turn the switch on on game day against top talent from other teams. And he consistently let people get by him in the secondary, which is a huge no-no for Pete Carroll. I mean, he was venting to reporters after he let Miles Boykin slip past him for a 50-yard gain in Week 7 against the Ravens. Like I said, I think that was the breaking point at that point. We can't have that in our defense. You can't be letting receivers get behind you as the center fielder. You're our last line of defense. And so while we saw a few clutch interceptions this year, the highlight reel one against the Rams specifically, you could see some of the glimpses of what this kid has done at practice, but he just unfortunately did not do that enough. He didn't flash enough to justify hanging on to him, and with Marquise Blair being there behind Diggs, there's just nowhere for him to get on the field. There's not a path without injuries, several injuries, for him to play, so it's understandable why the team gave him permission to seek a trade, and now ultimately has released him. He's going to get a better opportunity probably elsewhere. 
I think he will. Uh, as you talked about, twenty five years old, and you know, and, and has the the number of starts that he has in the NFL. Um, you know, was a very productive player at, at Colorado. Uh, you know, and, and this is not a particularly uh, special class at the at the safety position as well. Um, so all of those factors, I think, are, are reasons why Tedrick Thompson is very likely to get some significant interest in the um, in, in the open market. Um, I, I thought that that it was wise for Seattle to at least explore some trade opportunities. Of course, it's been widely reported. Thompson and his agent were were given the opportunity to kind of see if there was anything out there. Um, you know, obviously they didn't turn out well enough for Seattle to actually coax a team into a deal. Um, but at the same time, I think that it, it's it's the organization doing Thompson a favor, giving, allowing him to get his name out there, especially during this trying time with, with coronavirus. That I, I think that it, that is one of the reasons why um, the, the Seahawks are so well respected by players and agents out there. Um, the, the one other thing I, w- I would mention ab- about Thompson as well is again just the just the age, um, just just the fact that at 25, when you have the the proven starring ability that you do, um, then you are going to get some interest. What Seattle knows better than than most uh, is exactly what you just talked about, Corbin. Is that he did practice so well? It just felt like at times during the game that he would kind of lose his composure, make some mental mistakes, and as you just mentioned, in, in Pete Carroll's defense, you cannot make those types of mental mistakes. So while the athletic ability is there, the mental mistakes is one of the real ways that uh, he and Quandre Diggs really um, were, were very different players and why I think that Seattle feels very comfortable with, with Diggs and as you talked about Blair, uh, perhaps you know, pushing him for that starting role. But either way, uh, Tedrick Thompson was on the way out and today he officially was shown the door. Thompson was waived with a failed physical designation, so he's not going to be able to pick his own team, at least not right away. If somebody claims him off waivers, i actually be kind of surprised because the Seahawks saved more than $2 million in cap space by cutting him, I'll be surprised if anybody claims him at that price point. But and I think there will be some suitors because he has special teams ability. He's recovered a few fumbles on special teams. He's got the starting experience at free safety and his youth. There will be a few teams out there that are going to have interest in him. Now, Ed Dix, on the other hand, he was released outright. He's a veteran, so he's not going to be on waivers. He will get to pick his next team. I think he's going to have a little tougher time because of a number of different factors. Tedra Thompson is also coming off shoulder surgery, so both these guys are coming off injury-shortened seasons. Dixon didn't play at all last year. He missed the first six games in 2018 as well. He only played in 11 games, including a playoff game for the Seattle Seahawks, had 12 receptions and three touchdowns. So he played well when he actually was able to play. The problem was that he just could not get healthy. They tried to activate him in late November last year after he had knee surgery, and within 24 hours, he was back on injured reserve, and his season's over. So it ended up being a wash for him. He's going to be 33 in July, so he's got age working against him. He's got the injury history working against him. Again, he's a very good player when he's able to suit up. I expect somebody will give him a chance, but given the circumstances right now, I would not be surprised if he's a veteran that can't latch on until training camp starts whenever that time comes, given what's going on with the coronavirus. But whenever teams are able to return to practice, I think at that point is when you're maybe going to see somebody kick the tires on Dixon. 
Yeah, I agree with you. And, and the, the biggest reason why, as you just talked about, is the fact he's going to be 33 next year. Um, you know, again, this is not an elite tight end class, but this is one that does have some kind of intriguing guys that I think are going to get drafted on day three. I think that some of these players are going to surprise during the training camp process or the mini camp process or whatever teams have early on. That is going to be one of the reasons why a player like Ed Dixon um, is going to have a hard time finding a spot. Um, just because I think there's going to be a number of teams that are going to want to keep a younger player who has higher upside rather than a proven veteran like a Dixon. I, I do think that he has a spot in the NFL. I think he's going to get some opportunities, but I certainly expect there's going to be a lot more people knocking on Tedrick Thompson's door than Ed Dixon's. When we come back from the break, it's Throwback Tuesday. We're going to debate and rank the five worst draft choices in the John Schneider era. Don't go away. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. To get fit in 2020, you don't have to join a gym or pay a ton for overpriced fitness equipment. The best way to get in the best shape of your life is with Echelon. Go to echelonfit.com to discover the X1 connected fitness bikes that offer a high quality at-home cycling experience at less than half the price of Peloton. Echelon makes beautifully engineered products for everyone. Busy moms and dads, first responders and elite athletes, whatever your activity level. And with daily live and on-demand studio classes right in your home, you'll never have to step foot in a gym. You'll love Echelon, but if you aren't 100% satisfied, we'll give you your money back. Join the hundreds and thousands of men and women who are getting fit with Echelon. Don't pay a ton for a Peloton. Buy an Echelon bike today for under $1,000. Go to echelonfit.com slash Go to echelonfit.com slash L-O-N-F-L to learn about their limited time free Apple iPad and complete details of this exclusive offer. Echelon, it's your time. That's E-C-H-E-L-O-N fit.com slash L-O-N-F-L. Echelonfit.com slash L-O-N-F-L. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, along with Rob Rang. Later in the show, Christopher Carter of Locked On Steelers will be jumping on the show to chat with us about new Seahawks guard, B.J. Finney. Looking forward to hearing some perspective from someone who has covered him for several years. Last week, Rob, we discussed and debated the top five best draft choices of the John Schneider era based on when the player was drafted, on-field accomplishments, overall value with the Seahawks this week we're going to flip to the other side of the spectrum John Schneider is a fantastic general manager one of the best in football but even he's had plenty of whiffs in the draft as does every general manager in the league so we're not going to look at the five worst draft picks by the Seahawks since Schneider arrived back in 2010 we're going to do it just like last week we'll start with number five and then work our way up to the the biggest draft bust of the Schneider era who do you have coming in at number five kicking off our countdown well, I'm going to start off, Corbin, with the guy that was selected 199th overall way back in 2014. And, and you know, that's going to just kind of show my draft geekery, I guess, right off the bat, that I'm going to be complaining about a player taking basically 200th overall. But the offensive tackle from Marshall, Garrett Scott, was waived just about a month after the draft when, when Seattle's team doctors um, discovered a rare heart issue. And so my concern with that is, is what tests were being run prior to the May minicamp that wasn't run at the combine, that wasn't run um, when, when the team had their opportunity to, to kind of do some of their own medical evaluations on Garrett Scott. If the club did not uh, have the opportunity to do that medical evaluation on Garrett Scott, then, then I don't know that, that he should have been a player that they selected. 
Um, now, again, this is 199th overall. But at the same time, I, I kind of went back over the list of the players that were drafted 200th or later, and there were five different offensive or defensive linemen who have proven starters in the NFL that were selected after the Seahawks made Garrett Scott the 199th overall player. In fact, the 200th overall pick was the very next selection. The Kansas City Chiefs selected Laurent Duvernay-Tardif, who wound up being a heck of a starter for them, started 57 games uh, at guard for the Chiefs, including last year's Super Bowl. Uh, Matt Paradis, a a center for Denver and Carolina. Charles Leno, left tackle uh, in Chicago. Shamar Steven, uh, a former Seahawk and and current Minnesota Vikings defensive tackle, as well as Bo Allen, another defensive tackle, is now in New England. Previously, it was in Philly and in Tampa Bay. So my point is, is that was a selection that I thought uh, the, the Seahawks certainly should have got a better player um, than Garrett Scott was on tape, in my opinion. But also because of the, the medical issues, that's what ultimately made this, a, a, unfortunately, a bust selection for the Seahawks. Scott was on my honorable mention list, but I thought 199 was a little bit late. But you are right. There were some pretty darn good players that got picked after him. And so in hindsight, it looks like the Seahawks definitely could have done better there. And the medical situation there was really mysterious, trying to figure out how he somehow snuck through and the Seahawks didn't know about this heart condition. I'm going to stick with the offensive line for my pick number five, but I'm going to go with a different player. The next year, 2015 NFL Draft, Pick number 130, round four, Terry Poole out of San Diego State. Seahawks were trying to rebuild the offensive line after making back-to-back Super Bowls. You're trying to protect Russell Wilson, who just got paid big bucks, so you have less to work with to build the rest of your roster. And a lot of the moves that they made trying to overhaul that offensive line did not work out, Poole being one of them. He never could get healthy the couple years he was with the team, never suited up for a regular season game, and then they eventually outright released him in October 2016. So he was barely with the team a little over a year had some tenures with the Dolphins, the Texans. He was with the San Diego Fleet and the Alliance of American Football. And most recently, he was one of the best offensive linemen in the XFL. He actually played really well for the Houston Roughnecks. And this is a guy that I saw some college film on at San Diego State, and I thought he had some potential. So I was extremely disappointed when it didn't work out in Seattle. And unfortunately, 2015, 2016, 2017, we saw way too many whiffs, whether it was free agent signings or draft picks. The Seahawks just could not develop offensive linemen during that time. And to me, Poole was the poster child because of the talent and the position that he was playing. No, it's an excellent point. Uh, you know, and that's a great player to, to highlight. He did not make my top five, um, but but I, th- I can understand why he did make your top five. I can tell you that, that you know, some of the past coaches uh, definitely had a role in the selection of, of, of Terry Poole. Um, and, and so he, he's, a, he's a good player and he, or a good prospect who unfortunately wasn't able to put it all together. Um, but he was very much an interesting selection and one that really surprised me when, when Seattle made him that spot. I'll, I'll jump to my number four player. And, and that's I, I, I specifically put him at number four for a reason. You'll kind of hear this in a second. The, the individual player is the wide receiver, Gary Jennings, just last year. Um, you know, selected 120th overall, fourth round selection um, for Seattle. And again, I'm going to keep using that number four because it's just f- 
receivers selected in the fourth round in general have been colossal busts for the Seahawks. There have been five receivers selected in the fourth round of a Schneider era draft in Seattle, and they have resulted in a total, a grand total, these five receivers in three NFL touchdowns. And all of those were by the same guy, Chris Durham. You're talking about Durham. You're talking about Norwood, Jennings, and Chris Harper. So that's, you know, kind of been an abysmal uh, mix of receivers selected in the fourth round. To me, Gary Jennings being the most recent, and so therefore the guy um, that is a fourth-round pick being cut, uh, you know, out of training camp, I, I think that deserves a little bit of a red flag as far as some of the worst picks in Schneider's era. Jennings was my number six guy. He almost made the list just being one year removed from being drafted, but at least he was on the roster the first half of the season. Chris Harper was not Pick number 123 back in 2013, and and I was really high on Chris Harper coming out of Kansas State. 6'1", 228 pounds. This is a guy that could high point the football really well. I thought he was finally going to solve the big body issue that they had at receiver. They just couldn't get big bodied receivers and make it work. Sidney Rice was battling some injuries at that point. They just really struggled to develop players that were bigger at the receiver position and make them uh, competent contributors in the offense. And Harper really disappointed throughout training camp, had a rough preseason, didn't even make the roster out of camp. Spent a little time with the Giants, the Packers, 49ers. Eventually, he was out of the league by 2015. And if I remember correctly, I don't hold me to this, but I think he started doing stuff in the music industry after this. But unfortunately, he earned the unwanted distinction of being the second highest draftee from that NFL draft that did not make his team's opening roster. So to me, that has to be included in the top five on this list. I think that's an excellent point, and again, kind of just ties in with the whole point I've been trying to make about the the fourth round receivers, whether it be Harper or any of the other ones. None of them have, have turned out as well as Seattle had hoped. Now going to number three, I'm going back to the offensive line in the interior. A player that early on in his time in Seattle, I was excited about. I thought he was going to be a starter for a long period of time. Coming out of Wisconsin, John Moffitt, former two time All Big Ten selection. And unfortunately, this seems like a situation. I'm just zooming back to 2011. I thought they committed highway robbery when they snagged him in the middle of the third round. I thought he was one of the best guards in that draft class. I loved him in the run game. thought he was a really physical blocker coming from Wisconsin, which is an offensive line factory. He won the starting job early his rookie year. Then his career just unraveled. He had injuries. He couldn't stay on the field. And then the worst part, and this is why he's higher on the list more than anything, the unacceptable off-field behavior. He appeared in more games than any players that made my list, but he's going to take a major hit for the fact he was busted for substance abuse. He had several run-ins with the law. I mean, he urinated on a car at Bellevue Square Mall. That right there makes you a top five bust on any on any draft <laughs> list, doing something that stupid. So he, he never was able to turn things around. They traded him to the Broncos, and they actually tried to trade him to the Browns, and that ended up being negated. So he went back to Seattle. It was just a fiasco. It was a nightmare. Tried to come back with the Eagles, didn't make it work. And he's been out of the league for quite some time. So a really disappointing third-round pick at pick 75 that at the time I thought was going to be a steal for them. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy you mentioned Moffat. Uh, you know, I I remember sitting side by side with uh, you know our, our our friend Doug Farrar 
um, and when when the Seahawks selected him, and, and and Doug asked me that you know, kind of, he, hey, what do you like about John Moffat? And I had some game tape there, and I said, oh, you're gonna love this guy. I I was as high on him or higher than you were on him, uh, Corbin. I mean, very excited about him. And literally the very first snap that I, I showed uh, Doug after kind of extolling Moffat's virtues as a as a physical run blocker and all that, as he goes up and he, he slips and falls off a block at the second level and just looked terrible. And, and I just said, oh. I'll I'll show you another clip. And it seemed like the next clip I showed Doug was also another bad one. And he just kind of chuckled how like, wow, that's a little bit foreboding. I thought that this was a better player. And then I'm looking at some tape here and it doesn't look so good. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, obviously he, he had his struggles on and off the field in, in Seattle and elsewhere in the NFL. So I think that it's justified putting him at that spot. I do not have him in my top five. Although again, I think that it's very much justified in having him there. It's going back a ways. Um, and I thought that the Seattle was trying to kind of figure out exactly what they were trying to do with that spot. So I went with a Another local or another, excuse me, not local, but more recent player, and LJ Collier. And it's not the fact that LJ Collier struggled with durability last year. It's not, or or that you know, getting onto the field last year. It's not the fact that I don't think that he's going to be a good player. I do. I think that LJ Collier is going to be a perfectly solid football player. I'm just not interested in drafting perfectly solid football players in the first round. And I thought that, that Seattle overreacted and, and felt that the, the defensive linemen were coming off the board faster than they were ready for them to do so. And I thought that they panicked, frankly. Uh, I thought the LJ Collier should have been taken about 45th or 50th uh, in, in this past draft class and that they needed defensive linemen. They were worried they weren't going to be able to get one. And so I think that they reached a little bit. And I think that you can still do that with good teams. Again, I think the LJ Collier is going to be a good football player. But for the pass rushers that were available last year and for Seattle not to take advantage of that, uh, I think it's going to be something that potentially could hurt this franchise for a long time to come yeah we're gonna have to wait a few years from now to really know how things panned out but I still look at the fact that they had two opportunities to pick Montez Sweat and they didn't do it now there were some medicals there and obviously we just mentioned another player earlier that you know medicals do dictate who teams pick and the Seahawks may have been scared away by that but they had opportunities to bring in a couple guys that were far superior pass rushers, at least at the college level, and had more athleticism than Collier. And like you said, I still think he's going to be a good player, but I had a second-round grade on him. You had a second-round grade on him. Picking him at 27 seemed a little bit high there for a player of his caliber. They just missed out on other options, and like you said, I, I think they just kind of reached a little bit there. Going to my number two pick... I was torn between one and two because one player never played it down. The other one played quite a few, but he just was terrible. I decided to go with the guy that played a little bit at number two just because he was able to get on the field. He had a few shining moments, but it's got to be Christian Michael. In the 2013 NFL Draft, picked 62nd overall. This is a guy that put on a scintillating performance the combine. He was at the top of basically every single drill. The Seahawks could not resist using their first selection of that draft on him. He's going to be Marshawn Lynch's replacement. There were comparisons to Adrian Peterson out there, at least looking at his physical gifts. But he just couldn't turn those physical gifts into being a good NFL running back. He was never able to live up to the hype. He was with the team twice. Not only not only did his first time with the team fail, the second time he had a few good games, but then the team cut him in the middle of the season. So he just he never met the expectations. He played in 26 games, just 915 rushing yards, six touchdowns, wasn't somebody that was going to contribute as a receiver. His pass protection was abysmal. So ever since that point, he had a few brief stints of the Packers and Colts. He just played in the XFL for the St. Louis Battlehawks, had a couple nice touchdown runs, but he also had some plays where he tripped himself up without getting touched 
very Seahawk uh, Christian Michael-like there, playing in the XFL. He really, to me, is the poster boy of Schneider's weakest draft class in 2013. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. I mean, he's number two on my list as well. Uh, you know, nine career starts in the NFL for a guy who is as gifted as some of the best backs in the in, in the entire league. Um, it is just embarrassing in my mind. Um, you know, the, the, it wasn't just the you know the combine performance really showed off his athletic ability, but he was a superstar at Texas A&M. Mm-hmm. I mean, just short of. 3,000 rushing yards, 34 touchdowns. Um, you know, it comes into the NFL. You talked about the two stints in Seattle. Also was in Dallas. I mean, think about the way that Dallas runs the football, and you still couldn't be successful there. Green Bay, you're being complimented by Aaron Rodgers and that dynamic passing. Like Indianapolis, same thing. You know, dynamic pass attacks, and yet still was never able to be successful. I mean, you know, to me, it's one of the, the real mysteries. Um, you know, it, it makes the draft process so fascinating is you see some players who are just so physically gifted. But the most important thing is their heart, is their mind. How much, how seriously do they take the game? Do they really have that incredible work ethic to be willing to work harder after signing a multi-million dollar deal? That's very rare. Um, and, and Kirsten Michael, unfortunately, did not show the, the willingness or the ability to do that. And that's one of the reasons why he's considered certainly among the biggest busts in, for John Schneider, but I think one of the biggest busts in Seahawks history. Yeah, my biggest issues with Michael being a former running back coach, there were some habits that he still has in the XFL even, you know, not being able to transition the ball to your outside hand and making it easy for defenders to punch out, uh, clearly not being patient enough to let your blocks form and then make a cutback. His vision was very questionable in the league. The, like I said, the tripping and falling without being touched, it seemed like he did that every other time he touched the football. It got, it, it just got to the point where you're like, what is going on here? This guy was a star at Texas A&M, and he's just like forgotten how to run the football. And you would see flashes of that former player, but then he would crawl back into his shell, running into linemen and fumbling and tripping himself up. And the Seahawks eventually just ran out of patience, not once but twice, and moved on from two different times. So uh, it's unfortunate it didn't work out for him. And you know, if the XFL's back next season, if we get football back, maybe he'll continue playing. But it seems like his time in the NFL is done. Now let's go to number one. I feel bad to an extent putting this guy at number one just because he did suffer an accident in an ATV that completely changed his life. He he was not able to play after that point. But at the same time, he's also the one that made the decision to do that and get into that accident. And There's so much we don't know about Malik McDowell, the number 35 pick in the 2017 draft. That particular day when that accident happened, the team, the player, his representatives, everybody kept quiet about it. So very little is known. We don't know the specifics of the injuries suffered there. All we know is he never got to play in a training camp practice for them. He never played in a preseason game, regular season game, you name it. And this injury, the domino effect that it set up for Seattle. They had to ship a second round pick to the Jets to rent Sheldon Richardson for a year. That's a really expensive one-year rental. He ends up leaving for the Vikings and free agency. And so, really, it cost them two second-round picks, not just picking him in the second, but also that one to get Sheldon Richardson without playing a snap, failed to gain medical clearance in two seasons, and they finally, last uh, two marches ago, finally severed ties with him, and there's still been some murmurs out there that he would like to play. But at this point, there's no way that Malik McDowell's playing again, and since he never even played in a practice snap, he's got to be number one on this list. 
Yeah, he's number one on my list as well. And a big part of it is what you just talked about before with the two second round selections that ultimately he wound up costing you. Um, you know, obviously, John Schneider and the Seahawks were not there when this young man decided to get on that ATV. There, there's nothing they could have done about that. We're all our own person. They're going to make our own decisions. But at the same time, there were so many red flags about this player on and off the field. And so it just feels like if you are going to put anybody else at the top of your bust list, then you're going to have to justify it a little bit more than you do with Malik McDowell. There was, you know, virtually every player out there in that draft class. I mean, he was the one that was considered the poster boy for being the boomer bust player, a top 10 talent, no question about it. I mean, he's Chris Jones on the field. If he could just would have played with more consistency um, and taken the game seriously again on and off the field. And the fact that he did not do that throughout his time at Michigan State was one of the reasons why there were some teams, I was told, um, that, that he completely removed him off of their draft board. And that's something that gets thrown around in the media, but that doesn't happen that often when you have a guy who is as gifted as he is and playing a premium position. Um, and, and so I, I think that we do we do have to list him as the as the biggest bust uh, of, of the John Schneider led drafts um, in Seahawks history. But at the same time, with one heck of an asterisk, because obviously he never did play on the field. And I generally really struggle with, uh, you know, with, with assigning a player a bust grade when they struggle with injuries. Um, to me, it's, this should, should generally be about players who weren't quite as good as, as we thought they were going to be. Not about injuries, but with a player like. Uh, in McDowell, who, whose injury was because of risky behavior that he had shown a tendency to do in the past, then I think that he does deserve him being listed as the biggest bust in the John Schneider era. I still believe if McDowell would have been able to see the field that he ends up being a really good player for the Seahawks. So I, I'm not going to rip Schneider for the selection that he made. They had traded down a couple times. They got really good value from a talent standpoint. I mean, this guy had first-round talent. There's no question about it. And he was a guy that you could play the five-tech spot. He could play three-tech defensive tackle. He could rush the passer. He was a good run defender. I mean, there were games where... He single-handedly dominated along the defensive line in the rugged Big Ten and just jumped out to you. And then there's games he just disappeared. And so it was a lot like the off-field behavior. There were times where he was able to be kept in line, and then there were a lot of red flags out there. And unfortunately, it backfired on him and on the Seahawks, and we never got to see him in uniform. So as you mentioned, with the circumstances, it's both unfortunate, but it's justified that he's number one on this list. When we come back in the third quarter, we're going to be talking about new Seahawks guard and center, B.J. Finney with Christopher Carter of Locked on Seahawks. Hawks going to get some insight from a reporter that has covered the team for several years and has covered the player. Really looking forward to a different perspective on Finney. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back. Glad to have you joining us here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, along with Rob Rang. One of the biggest changes that has unfolded so far in this new league year, the Seahawks are going to have a vastly different looking offensive line. Jermaine Effetti, much to the cheers and applause of fans everywhere, has left for Chicago. George Fan is gone. Mike Upati is likely gone. They've signed four linemen during the free agency period, including former Kansas State standout B.J. Finney. Here to chat with us about Seattle's newest lineman. We're thrilled to have Christopher Carter of Locked On Steelers joining us here on the air. Thanks for jumping on, Chris. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Corbin. Glad to be back. So, Seahawks signing B.J. Finney. My first reaction initially was, 
Who? That was the first thing that I said because I hadn't <laughs> seen Finney play very much. But then I looked at his pro football focus grades. I'm not a big pro football focus guy, but I, you know, it's the best grading system out there probably. So I was looking at that. It's like he's got pretty good pass pro numbers there. Watched some film and I thought, you know, this guy's pretty good, but he just doesn't fit what Seattle normally is looking for in the interior of their offensive line. So it made me wonder. Maybe the Seahawks are finally going to let Russell Wilson cook a little bit and throw the football a little bit more. So they're bringing in some guys that are really good in pass pro. But let's get your perspective here. You've gotten to see Finney play 13 starts for the Steelers the last four years. He's played three different spots. What's your general assessment of where Finney is at at this point in his career? Is he ready to be a starter in this league? Absolutely. I mean, the Steelers were on their way to signing him when the Seahawks swooped in and got him. Uh, you know, they he he's one. Okay, you got to understand, BJ Finney, undrafted guy, came in in the days of Mike Munchak, and uh, Mike Munchak just had that that Midas touch that you know every backup lineman that he that he brought up to the starting lineup seemed to perform well. Uh, you know, Chris Hubbard ended up getting a huge paycheck to go to the Browns. He was uh, the he was like the, the third or fourth offensive tackle on the roster. And I mean, for years they've got undrafted guys like Ramon Foster and, and Alejandro Villanueva. Uh, B.J. Finney, Matt Filer nowadays, um, and you know the, now you're looking at you know guys like Zach Banner who wasn't undrafted, but you know, they picked him off off, off free agency because uh, he was he he didn't have too good of a stint before. Um, but uh, but B.J. Finney, he's one of those guys, and what really sold him to the Steelers was that he played he was willing to play all the different positions on the interior and play them well. Uh, it's the first time you really saw a good glimpse of him was uh, against the Chiefs in uh, 2016 and the Steelers offense was just on fire that night and uh, but BJ Finney fit right in um, whenever Marquise Pouncey got hurt which years ago that used to be a lot nowadays it's not as much um, he would be a quick fill-in and you could put him at either guard position one thing that will always win you over about BJ Finney is he's good with his technique um, you can rely on him to pull and hit people in space and he won't blow up anybody but he will be a guy that you can rely on to do the job on the interior and handle an assignment. Well, first off, Chris, thank you for that that detailed breakdown. I very much appreciate it. Uh, I guess my my question to you would be a relatively simple one. Having watched him play these, the, you know, the variety of positions that he has, if you could just pick out one position that you think he's at his best, what would that position be? Hmm, it's tough because there it depends on on like the matchups and the type like. He is not going to be the guy that takes on a brawler in uh, in uh, uh, what you call zero technique. Like like if he has to line up against Fletcher Cox in the hole, he's in trouble. But if you give him if you if he's the center, I mean Fletcher Cox isn't a zero technique guy, but still, um, if he's the center against a four man front, you're in a very good spot. That's where that's kind of where he can kind of be at his, at his best. He can move around. He can assist other players. Like he's not going to be the mauler of the line that that generates the momentum. But he is going to be the guy that can assist everyone, you know, everyone from his left shoulder to his right shoulder, and then pull and help lead block or trap down a defensive end that you've let let go, let fly down the line. Um, so he's really good at that. I mean, that and left guard, I, I I would feel really comfortable with Finney as a starter. In fact, the Steelers were ready to call him a starter. Um, they, they they let Ramon Foster be the starter this past year because Ramon Foster is a great locker room guy. He's a great he's a great guy in general, um, and he's been with the team for so long. Uh, but Finney was, I mean, legitimately, uh, according to Jeremy Fowler from ESPN, the, the, the Seahawks moved, they scooped him right as the Steelers were negotiating with Finney to stay here. And that's, you got to understand that that's also huge uh, emotionally for Finney because 
he grew up a Steelers fan. And when uh, he wasn't drafted and he was signed by the Steelers as an undrafted free agent, like he was celebrating and his family was celebrating because they were all Steelers fans and it was a dream come true for him. Um, and I mean, this is a guy who played for years with the Steelers. And, you know, according to sources we had with the uh, with the Steelers, this guy was still showing up to, to practice or to not to practice, to train after this season was over without a contract. He was he was working out of the Steelers facilities. He was still, you know, expecting to be with the team as I think the team was expecting him to be with them. Um, so, you know, all in all, I think that this the, he's, he's going to be a heck of a guy uh, for Seattle to have because, you know, if one guy goes down and you need to move things around, he is not he is not afraid to switch positions. Whereas other players, you know, you might be skeptical. Of, oh, can he snap in the shotgun? Or you know, oh, is he going to be able to handle you know uh, you know a, a, a three technique defensive tackle that you know every every single down. I was telling you earlier, Christopher, when they first made this signing, and I love the input that you're giving us here because a lot of it's matching up with a lot of the things that I saw in film, but it definitely didn't seem like this is the kind of player that's going to come in and overpower people off the line of scrimmage. He's not somebody that's going to create a lot of push at any of those three positions, though. I did feel like watching the Ravens game in Week 17, I don't know what got into him in that game, but... I only had him marked for four run wins in the four starts I watched before, and he had double digits in that game. He was just blowing people up, and the Ravens actually had most of their starters in on defense. So I've seen some glimpses. To me, that center position, it seems like it mitigates the lack of arm length a little bit more than those guard positions do. And I'm glad that you mentioned the ability to get out in space and block people because I don't know about you, but when we get to this time of year and you start looking back at draft profiles for players, I love to look back and just see what were people right about, what were people wrong about. And one of the big glaring cons on every draft report that I read on this guy was that he can't pull and he cannot block in space. But those are two things that, watching, he didn't get to get to the second level very often in Pittsburgh's scheme, but when he did, right. I was really impressed with what I saw. So I'm I'm looking to this guy being able to jump in Seattle's system as a zone-blocking guy, but I did see some things at the end of the year this past season that indicated to me that maybe he can be a little better fit as far as being an upfront man scheme blocker than anticipated it just looks to me like things late in the year really clicked for him uh yeah and that's the thing once once he got going it also you got to understand the Steelers offensive line was uh was I mean the Steelers whole offense was in shambles without Ben Roethlisberger and then as the year continued on as they were trying to find you know new way after new wrinkle after new experiment to try and cover up for the weaknesses of Devlin Hodges and Mason Rudolph you saw the line kind of deteriorate like their best game was arguably, uh, you know, against the Rams. Uh, and it was, it was a horrible day for the offense, but the offensive line at least contained Aaron Donald. And a perfect example of what we're talking about here and that he won't blow any, anyone up, instead of B.J. Finney bumping over to ha- handle uh, Aaron Donald, they bumped over Matt Filer from right tackle to handle that, which is an indication that I think that they're ready to do with that with Matt Filer full-time. Um, but with B.J. Finney, you know, he's that guy that, yeah, when he get, gets that chemistry going with his other teammates and they, they get that flow, that's what's going to allow, especially, you know, the Seahawks, they got a lot of young running backs, Carson, Penny, uh, and with the way that, that Wilson plays, I think that that could fit a system really well, is that he once he gets going with whoever else lines up in the interior with him, that chemistry starts to show because then, like you said, he, you know, that's when he can accelerate to the second level because, hey, I'm going to chip, we're going to chip this guy, I'm going to get the backer over here. And that's when you start to see Finney really do well for the Steelers was when they when he started to get that feel for how he can run block 
and uh, not have to rely on himself. So, yeah, that, that's one. You're absolutely right. That's one thing that a lot of people uh, got wrong about him. Um, I mean, this, this happens all the time. People don't see enough on tape. And so they're just like, you know, oh, well, I'm going to categorize this based off of a few experiences that I've seen here. But then, again, when you look at it, you know, I think a really good example, if you want a good example of B.J. Finney, go back to the end of the 2017 season. He started against the Texans and the Browns, and you really got to see him get a little bit in there. Um, you know, the, the Chiefs that same year in Kansas City was a really good game for him. Um, but, you know, and I just I think that that's where he accelerates is that when he when he gets a chance to work with guys that he's familiar with and that he's had some time to practice with, you're going to see those combination blocks start to, to happen, the tips to the backers, and um, he'll make the smart and heady plays as a center or a guard that keep within your scheme but not overextending his ability. Anyway, Chris, uh, before I let you go, I, I, you know you and I were talking about this before the show, kind of just a chance to reflect on the Steelers offseason here. What do you think is next up for this team? Are they going to do anything more in free agency, or are they completely shifting towards the draft now, getting ready for 2020? All indications that we're getting here from the organization is that they are now ready to just handle the draft and then make moves afterwards. Now, many people, and, and this is what I kept telling people, the other, the other locked-on guys in the AFC North thought I was crazy, but I was saying, like, the Steelers at the you know at the end of the season looked like they were up against it with the cap, but all they had to do was do a few restructures, let go guys that they knew they were getting rid of, like Ramon Foster, Mark Barron, Anthony Ciccolo, which all of that happened, and all of a sudden they had like over $20 million in cap space. They they franchise tag Bud Dupree, they signed Eric Ebron, they signed Derek Watt, they get rid of Roosevelt Nix, and all of a sudden now all the weaknesses that were glaring, like they didn't have a number two tight end option, now Vance McDonald, who was the starter, is the tight end two. Number number two, uh, they've got a solid fullback. They you know they they're able, they're able to come in and now they're saying, hey, we, you know we lost BJ Finney, we got Stefan Wisniewski. Um, so the Steelers have what Kevin Colbert did as the GM. He made sure that the Steelers had, hey, all my bases are covered. I have pass rushers, I have interior guys, I have cover linebackers, I have cornerbacks, I have safeties, I have a quarterback that I can bank on. Now everyone's wondering, oh, it's Ben Roethlisberger. You know, if he goes down, what happens? If Ben goes down, even if they go and they sign, you know, a random backup quarterback that was that, that would have cost them eight to ten million dollars, um, I, I don't think that this team go, goes that far. He is a, he is what this system's built around. Um, what the Steelers are probably going to do that I expect, and I've been telling people for months, um, they're going to probably go look at a running back in this with that second round pick at forty nine. Um, as long as one of the top four or five guys are still there, which I expect to happen. Uh, and then after the draft, you know, they'll probably get running back, maybe another interior defensive lineman, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a backup pass rusher and maybe a receiver to, 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 to keep that that core young. Uh, but then after that, that's when you see like, OK, now who did we get? They still have seven million dollars in cap space, even with the Ebron signing. So um, they have space to make necessary moves if they have to. But the right now, Kevin Colbert, as he seems to do a lot lately uh, and well throughout his career, he, he had so many legendary picks but um he what he does is he seems to balance out the roster going into the draft so he's not pigeonholed into saying we have to select this guy so i think they'll go running back but honestly if there's an offensive playmaker that will help ben roethlisberger in the next two years uh, i think that's going to be their primary target it's just like the Seahawks, a lot of these well-run organizations. The Steelers are not yeah. a team that's going to run out there and spend a bunch of money on one of the big-name free agents. That's just not what they do. And so I think they've quietly had a really good offseason. I think the Ebron signing is sneaky. He is a player that yeah. I think fits their system extremely well. So Pittsburgh's a team, if they can just keep Roethlisberger healthy, they're going to be right back in the mix there to get back into the postseason. they got a lot of young weapons that they've been developing. And 
just having Roethlisberger is going to really help things. Chris, we greatly appreciate having you on to chat about Finney and the state of the Steelers. Where can we find your work? As always, find me on Twitter at Carter Critiques. If you follow me, I'll follow you back. I'm always down to chat with guys, so don't be afraid to at me or DM me. You can also read my work at DKPittsburghSports.com, where I'm the lead NFL analyst. Uh, also, if you want to help me out, <laughs> there's, a, there's a Pittsburgh Media March Madness bracket, and apparently I've made the Final Four. So if you go to my at Carter Critiques, you can find the poll there and vote for me. You heard the man. Hey, we haven't gotten to celebrate March Madness this year. Go take advantage of it on those brackets and, and go vote for Chris. Pittsburgh Media, get it done. We appreciate it, Chris. <laughs> hey, best wishes to you and your family during these difficult times. Same to you guys. Thanks for thanks, joining Chris. us. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, guys. That was great. Woo. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. If you'd like to be a featured sponsor on the Locked On Seahawks podcast, you can contact us, LockedSeahawks, at gmail.com. Subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever your preferred podcast platform is, by visiting our website, LockedOnSeahawks.com. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we'll discuss which players have been impacted most by Seattle's free agent and trade moves so far, discuss the latest on the Jadevian Clowney and Everson Griffin fronts, and much more. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Go Hawks!